0: Poor Mark, there's good news to you.
2: If we ain't all free, ain't
3: none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison.
4: Hello, Tennessee Valley. You are listening to a very special episode of The Valley Labor Report in double- Overtime, released on YouTube the day after Christmas for your listening pleasure. My name is Jacob Morrison, my co-host is Adam Keller, and today we're bringing you a few older clips that we dug up while getting some best ofs that did not quite fit into our regular programming. Uh, But we did the research, we dug dug, uh, into the archives, and we still wanted to share it with you. So today, We've got an interview that I really, really enjoyed at the time uh, but I thought didn't get enough love when it went live and that's the history of mass picketing in the United States with uh, Professor Ahmed White. We're also going to be getting another history lesson on Blair Mountain from Dr. Chuck Keeney and uh, we're gonna get some bad boss stories and more today in our special double overtime program. So something that really uh, that really saddens me is that callers have gotten most animated about immigration. Uh, I really, I actually, if I'm thinking back through some of the angry calls that we get, I don't know that I've gotten more angry reactions than I have to to immigration. Uh, that really is an issue that that folks have just been programmed to react poorly to. Uh, and react poorly they did in this clip where we had on immigration attorney Stephen Robbins, also known as Ronald Reagan to the majority report audience and uh, I think that he responds better than, uh, than I could have. So uh, with that context out of the way, here's the clip. We did get a caller. We've only got about 10 minutes left with Stephen. So we've got uh, Lee on the line. Lee, uh, where are you calling from? Huntsville. Lee from Huntsville. Uh, What's your question?
2: Just curious. Not even going to comment on the loose back and forth between undocumented, documented as if there's not that much difference, which, of course, there is. But um, my question for you is, if you give a $15 wage... Or agricultural work, how are the rest of us going to afford the produce uh, at that cost level? Because it will drive the cost up exponentially.
5: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, uh, to your first comment, um, the distinction between uh, undocumented and documented workers, I, I think it's really important to un- for people to understand how arbitrary it is who gets and who doesn't get papers in this country. Um, people can get papers if they've been here you know, maybe they've been here illegally or undocumented for over 10 years and then they end up in removal proceedings, they can end up winning a green card. That's technically a right way to do it. Other people have been here 20 years and paid taxes and done everything above board, uh, but there's no way for them to get papers. And so, um, you know, I I hear what you're saying, but I also think that we need to really look at the, the system as it is and to understand that, the people who end up in one basket or the other, it's not due to merit. It's due to a random sort of patchwork of bad laws that need to be updated. In terms of I don't disagree can,
2: with that. I don't disagree with that. But I do think we should have a better expanded worker program where they can come and then exit our country because I don't think that people coming here for we can't support the entire world. So there needs to be a better way for people right. to come in and be able to work <clears> and leave that so we don't need to be supporting these people with our social programs. That should be uh, reserved for the citizens of our country. That—that's just my opinion. But tell me about the how we would, right. uh, how we would stop the increase in the
5: cost. The increase in, in produce prices. I think that anytime you look at a, an economy that says, in order for us to have something that we need, like food. Other people have to live in abject poverty, and that's just the way that it has to be. We need to really take a closer look at that, right? And so, first of all, I don't know that it's true that the prices would go up all that much if we raised uh, wages. I, I don't think that I've ever seen the growers actually present the math on that. We hear things like that about the $15 minimum wage all the time. But then you look at places like Seattle where they've they've implemented a $15 minimum wage and prices have not increased um, in any significant way. And then the other thing, like I was mentioning to Jacob earlier, if the president can get us into a trade war and we can come up with tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars to just give to the farmers and and it doesn't register on anyone's radar, nobody cares, then Mm -hmm. certainly if we saw a situation where farm workers were making $15 uh, an hour and, and produce prices started to go up. There's no reason why that same type of money couldn't be used to either, um, subsidize the, the, uh, the cost of food or to subsidize the workers directly. So, um, I, you know, I I understand the concern, but also I want you to step back and think to yourself, wait a minute. What I'm saying is that in order for me to eat, We need to have impoverished people in this country,
4: impoverished people in this country for a season and then kick them back out.
5: Is what she said, actually. Right. And so, you know, we need to be better than that. And it's not a right left thing. It's not a liberal conservative thing. It's just, hey, you know what? Uh, I don't want the guy who comes to fix my kitchen to have to, you know, Uh, live on poverty wages or I don't want somebody who cuts my lawn to have to live on poverty wages. I think that people should who work hard should live with dignity. Mm -hmm. Right. And so if that's not happening or if I think that that's necessary, um, then we need to take a step back and and think about how we can fix that.
4: Right. Yeah. Just because something is is a certain way doesn't mean that it has to be that way. That's that's certain. We've got one more caller.
3: Jeff, where are you calling from? Oh, Jeff from New Orleans, how you doing? Jeff from New
4: Orleans, what's your question?
3: Uh, hey, I was calling uh, to talk a little bit about how workers who are who don't have immigration status are also um, misclassified. Often as uh, you know, where, where they would often have jobs that where they would be an employee, they would get misclassified as an independent contractor. Can Stephen, can you talk a little bit about that and how that uh, impacts how uh, you know these workers are treated?
5: Um, I actually don't know too much about that, um, and, and maybe uh, you do. Um, and, and I'd mm-hmm. love, love to hear uh, more about that. But I, d- I don't know too much about that issue. Okay. I do know. I, I do know what, what Jacob mentioned earlier about uh, ICE being called at the end of a, a successful um, organization effort. Uh, I've definitely heard those stories, um, and and those kinds of things uh, definitely happen uh, to undocumented workers.
3: Yeah, well, that's one of the things. Like, like uh, that. I guess my uh, I have some friends that work for the uh, Great New Orleans AFL CIO, and they talk about how immigration status is often leveraged against these workers, so that they. I mean, w- w- when they you know, you know would technically have you know the same rights as other workers, too, you know, when they're on the work on the worksite, uh, they're they're sort of influenced to not exercise those rights. And uh, I just wanted to really quickly plug one other thing. Uh, which is like, like the pro act would be something that would, which is going through Congress, that's already been passed through the House, um, that would sort of really, really uh, push against that, uh, that kind of a force. It would make it much more difficult to misclassify those workers. There's stiffer penalties too, um, for that. So.
4: Yeah, Jeff, uh, Stephen mentioned this to me before the show, which is that uh, – that you know, and, and I, I knew this, but I would forgotten it – that the NLRA doesn't cover agricultural work. And so uh, right. I can't recall if the PRO Act actually – the PRO Act is, is an amendment to the NLRA. And so I can't recall if the – Oh, it, the, wouldn't, I, it I can't, wouldn't apply. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm not sure if the PRO Act amends it to cover agricultural work. And I guess, Stephen, since since you haven't heard much about what the PRO Act would do to, to ag workers, I'm, I'm I'm kind of assuming that it doesn't actually do that.
5: Right? Yeah, I don't I don't think it does. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it's an interesting point. I think you know more broadly, and, and to the last caller's point too, um, the the Farm Workforce Modernization Act still treats undocumented workers like criminals it, it uh, finds them and puts them on this long laborious path to a green card but nowhere does it say anything about holding the the farmers accountable for employing people who they knew were undocumented and so um you know it i i don't see quite as enough progress on that front of um you know holding uh you know the employers to account, but hopefully the pro act, um, you know, provides a little bit more um, rights to the workers.
4: Yeah, and and you oh, know, Lee, if you're, oh no, yeah, and and Lee, if you're still listening, actually, uh, uh, as far as you mentioned about um, immigrants. You know taking advantage of our of our social programs so to speak uh, I wrote an article um, some time ago I just published it on, on medium and, and if you follow me on Twitter at Jacob M underscore al I'll tweet that article out again um, I, I did a lot of digging and I, actually like if you compare similarly situated immigrants documented and undocumented they use significantly less uh, they use significantly less social programs yeah. than similarly situated Native workers that is just not up for dispute. And additionally, their children, the the firstborn children of immigrant workers, uh, actually do the bring in more tax revenue than any other group of Americans uh, it, 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 at at all. I mean, it, it's it's really fascinating how how much more uh, how, how much more than than a you know third or fourth or fifth generation American. It's fascinating how much a first-generation American citizen, the, the the children of immigrants, uh, contribute more to our tax coffers than, than any other group. It, it, it's really a lot. So if you follow me, I'll tweet that out after the show uh, on Twitter at Jacobin underscore AL. Stephen uh, and Jeff, thanks for the call. I appreciate it. Um, I think, I, and I'm pretty sure Jeff is actually the host of uh, Good Morning Comrade, which is another show on uh, WHIV in New Orleans, uh, so and, and he actually put me in touch with Dr. Deary, the founder of the station. Uh, so, Stephen, we've got about a minute left. I really appreciate your time. You've been very generous. I've enjoyed the conversation. I hope folks have learned some stuff. What are some of your closing thoughts a, uh, on this subject, and where can people find you?
5: Uh, I'm, on, I'm on the Twitter, just like you. Uh, Yakima Abogado is my Twitter handle. Uh, the podcast is called Redirect. Um and yeah, um, you know, I, I appreciate the call from Lee. Uh and uh she has some concerns. But again, I I, I really hope that people can just start to see these people as people, right? Um mm-hmm. they're uh hardworking uh for the most part, obviously. They are like everybody else. Um and mm-hmm. they just want an opportunity to uh feed their kids, to uh live with dignity and Uh, to be a part of our community. And so I think that as Americans, we can uh, do a better job of uh, providing that.
4: In this older clip from 2021, we talked to Dr. Chuck Keeney from West Virginia, and he gave us a quick history lesson about what happened at Blair Mountain. So we've got about two minutes left and one more question on this, uh, on the kind of the the backstory and the ideological fight. And then I want to get into like, okay, what actually happened with the mine wars? But lay out really quickly, what are those two competing visions of liberty that were, that were kind of at war at the Battle of Blair Mountain?
6: Well, uh, in the Battle of Blair Mountain, it's number one, it's the ideals of uh, free market laissez-faire capitalism uh, on one hand and uh, a more uh, equitable uh, idea on the other hand. I mean, you had a big mix of ideals. It would be incorrect to say that all the minors were ideologically the same mm-hmm. uh, that the, the joined this rebellion. However, there were a lot of socialists that were, that were involved. The Socialist Party, uh, for a while in West Virginia, had uh, some power, and then they had some popularity in West Virginia. And believe it or not, a lot of evangelical Christians were socialists in West Virginia, mm-hmm. which uh, if I were to go to a church and say that tomorrow morning a lot of people's heads would explode because right. they wouldn't um uh, they wouldn't connect to themselves with that and so um, it, it's it's those two main overarching gotcha. ideas dr keeney thank
4: you we're gonna be right back talk some more Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host, David Story. On the line, we've got Dr. Chuck Keeney. He is a West Virginia historian and a founding member of the Mine Wars Museum. So
7: And author of The Road to Blair Mountain. Author of
4: The Road to Blair Mountain. So let's talk about The Road to Blair Mountain as in... Not want to talk about the book a little bit later, but the actual what. So give us the backstory before this big battle. What 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 lay the lay the groundwork for us? What was the kind of historical uh, circumstances around this battle?
6: OK, so West Virginia, of course, by the 1880s, uh, they begin to understand through geologic surveys that there's a whole lot of coal in West Virginia and outside investors begin to come in and begin buying up all of the land, taking the land a lot of times from native mountaineers that had been here for a while. My family among them, my family lost 2000 acres to the coal industry in uh, around uh, 1883, 1884. And this happened to a lot of uh, mountain families that that had been around for a while. They lost their land and uh, found themselves uh, working in coal camps. And so the coal industry comes in and they Duke is, in some ways, kind of a hostile takeover of the state in which they control the politics, uh, the judges. Um, the land. And they build up these little coal towns in which they operate these towns independently. And I think you guys are probably familiar with the company town structure. Mm-hmm. But in West Virginia, you had the highest percentage of coal miners living in company towns than in any other state. Company uh, so towns the the 90% of all West Virginia coal miners lived on company property. The second highest state was Illinois with about 48%. So twice as many uh, from a ratio, twice as many in West Virginia were living in company towns, which means they had a company town, they had a company store, company church, mm. company money, company saloon. You get the point. Okay. Um, they had their mail opened. They had their on. Um, they had their ballots filled out for them on election day. Uh, they also had the brutal mine guard system, the security forces that, uh, companies would have, and they were brutal. They spied on people. They posed as saloon keepers. They posed as miners. They spied on people. They beat up potential union, uh, organizers. Uh, you could be beat up and lose your job for possessing the wrong kind of literature, a United mine workers journal, so on and so forth. and. Oh, uh, and then uh, eventually the miners themselves, you know, fight back. And you don't just have native white miners, of course, you have a lot of immigrants that are brought in, African Americans that come up from the South. um, And they all are, are stuck in these little company towns together. And ultimately they end up joining forces and try to unionize. Many of them become socialists. The Socialist Party became rather popular in a lot of coal camps. My great grandfather was a socialist. Um, and it had a number of little socialist mayors in towns that were, un- or they were incorporated towns right off company property. You often had a little socialist mayor uh, right off company property. You had this on the Pink Creek, Cabin Creek strike. So anyway, around 1912, uh, the, the miners uh, tried to organize. Now, these were big stakes for the United Mine Workers. And the reason it was was because you had the, the UMWA had been successful in organizing the central bituminous field a couple of years before 1912. And this was, you know, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois. However, West Virginia co operators, because they were able to keep the union out, they were able to undersell these co operators in the central bituminous field. They were able to sell coal cheaper and they were running these other co-operators out of business. So the the co-operators of the central bituminous field told the UMWA, if you don't organize West Virginia, we're cutting our union contracts. So the UMWA had to organize West Virginia in order to stay viable as an organization. The co-operators of West Virginia felt that they had to keep the union out in order to out-compete co-operators in other states. So from the very beginning, these are extremely high stakes. And uh, they go on strike. Everybody's evicted from their homes. They live in tent colonies. And the miners begin organizing themselves into guerrilla warfare units. Um, my great-grandfather was in one of those called the Dirty Eleven. that, uh, And they... Uh, blew up tipples. They tore up railroad tracks. They attacked uh, scabs. Then they attacked mine guards. There were pitched battles that took place in the Pink Creek Cabin Creek strike in which, you know, 15 people would be killed in one battle, 10 in another, 16 in another. Uh, Mother Jones, of course, the very famous national union organizer comes to West Virginia. They ultimately win the Pink Creek Cabin Creek strike and bring the union into the canal coalfields. And uh, Frank Keeney, who became the leader, uh, him and Fred Mooney, who became the two big leaders during that strike. And they weren't union organizers. They were just miners who just took it over themselves. And uh, they become uh, the union leadership in West Virginia. During World War One, they successfully organized the whole state except for three counties, Mingo, McDowell, and Logan County, the southernmost coal counties. And these were high coal-producing counties, but they couldn't organize them because of the heavily entrenched mine guard system uh, that was there. And so they had this unionizing drive after World War One. Things get even more violent. Mingo County becomes known as Bloody Mingo. You had... Um, Uh, a lot of events known as the Battle of Matewan, sometimes called the Matewan Massacre, that's a very famous gunfight that took place. Uh, You had the Three Days Battle of the Tug, a three-day battle along the Tug River on the Kentucky-West Virginia border that killed in excess of 30 people. We really don't know the exact number of people. In a lot of these gunfights, we really don't know exactly how many people were killed. And uh, they declared martial law in Mingo County. Uh, They brought in uh, troops. And uh, they began arresting miners. They, they cut off the, the family's food supplies that were living in the tent colonies. And ultimately two individuals, Sid Hatfield and Ed Chambers, Uh, One of them was a chief of police mate one and his deputy were murdered on the McDowell County Courthouse steps by mine guards. And that was kind of the spark that led to miners in the other coal fields decide we're going to march from Charleston down into these counties and forcibly drive the mine guards out and release the miners that were prisoners and bring food and supplies to the people that were living in these tent colonies. Uh, The Lick Creek Tent Colony had become known by that time as Labor's Valley Forge. And uh, just appalling conditions families were living in. And so they were trying to march south to Mingo County to drive out the mine guards. But in between Mingo County and Charleston was Logan County. And uh, there was a series of ridge lines that kind of made a natural fortress about uh, five or six miles north of Logan, town of Logan. And this is where uh, the sheriff of Logan County and the mine guard set up defensive entrenchments along a 12 mile front on these ridge lines, beginning at Blair Mountain and going up to uh, Mill Creek. It's called the Battle of Blair Mountain, but the battle was much bigger than the actual mountain. Okay, yeah. it t- took place along a 12 mile front for five days. And uh, miners, uh, it started out with about 5,000 miners, and the numbers may have swelled up to around 15,000. Uh, they were organized. Um, we don't have time to get into the organization of it, but in August 1921 is when they begin marching south. They fight this five-day pitch battle uh, between company forces and uh, state troopers. Uh, and uh, the miners themselves uh, who were organized. Of course, the miners wore red bandanas around their necks. Uh, That had been a tradition that had been going on for quite a while at that time and uh, were referred to as rednecks uh, as a result of that. That's not the exact origin of the term redneck, but uh, in West Virginia, if you said redneck, that meant a union man at the time. But because the miners didn't control the press, they didn't control the media, they were portrayed as backward, ignorant hillbillies. And the term redneck kind of became associated with someone who's backward and ignorant uh, because the miners themselves didn't control the media. But to them, uh, the red bandana meant union solidarity. Mm -hmm. Um, That's what the term meant. And it it has become this kind of scarlet thread throughout West Virginia history. Teachers, when they went on strike in 2018, they wore red bandanas around their necks uh, to recall uh, the miners of Blair Mountain. So it's been a continuing tradition. Anyway, federal troops were eventually brought in. The miners surrendered. There was a series of treason trials which took place thereafter. And uh, the mind wars kind of fizzled out after that. So that's a, a, a very, very uh, quick nutshell uh, of what happened. Yeah,
7: and and it's rare that me and Jacob don't try to interject somewhere, but <laughs> we're both sitting here like 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 children in a, in a school in a schoolhouse.
4: All right, folks. So one of the things that we want to do on the program is encourage people to share their experiences in the workplace uh, so that y'all know that you're not alone and we're not alone. We all have really terrible experiences at work and uh, it doesn't have to be that way. To facilitate this, in this clip from way back when Adam was first starting the transition into the show, he and I talk about a couple of our own bad boss stories. We have opened the line for boss bashing. um, And so Adam and I, and if you're it watching
7: out. on YouTube, we, this is exactly how we plan out the show. We're talking in the commercial break. <laughs> what are we going to do on what the next segment? <laughs>
0: That's we're, right. We're very good at just uh, making it up as we go along. That's That's right. an essential skill in life.
7: <laughs>
4: so, Adam and I are going to close it out with our bad boss stories. Um, and uh, uh, so, I worked for years in the restaurant industry. And the restaurant industry is the industry that is currently, you know... um, their, the 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 restaurant bosses, their tears are flowing right now because uh, they <laughs> their tears Boo-hoo. yeah the the restaurant bosses tears are flowing right now because it is not as easy it's still not impossible but it is not as easy for them to lord homelessness and starvation over their workers and so they're having a difficult time getting people to work for two to ten dollars an hour at their restaurant. So they're crying a lot. I worked in the restaurant
7: industry for three years. What's that? What was that first number you said? What first number? Of the salary for restaurant workers. 2 to $10 dollars tipped, an hour. For tipped restaurant yeah. workers. I, I wonder how many people recognize. So tell mm-hmm. people how much. Yes. The, when people refuse to tip at a restaurant, right, right. tell them how much your waiter or waitress is making per hour.
4: Yeah. $2.13 an hour is what I made uh, for the whole time that I was a server. I eventually got promoted to uh, like shift manager, which is, you know, not really actually managed you're just kind of like a team lead, uh, and here's and you know what I made when I was a shift manager, <laughs> I made a cool five dollars and 45 cents an hour. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. Look at you,
7: big shot! I was a big shot being a shift manager. You'd be surprised how many people will take a, a, a pay cut mm-hmm. to call themselves a manager,
4: yeah. No, that was a pay raise because I yeah, was making
7: two dollars an people, hour. I have worked with people that will take a pay cut no, just so bonkers. they feel important. Yeah, yeah, keep
0: an eye on those people. Yeah. Be, they're <laughs> <learning>.
2: Literally,
7: literally <laughs> yeah. our hourly workers make more than our first line managers. Jeez. And good. there's been yeah. several people that would take those. That first take the job. That's crazy. So they can call Some people really like
0: power right? yes, yeah. Exactly.
4: So I didn't have any power. All I it was just more work. That was all that I had for my position as a shift manager I just had to in addition to waiting tables while I was a shift manager I had to make sure that everybody in the back was doing what they what they needed to do if somebody didn't show up in the back then I had to go back and cook burgers while I was waiting tables and I also had to order the groceries the, that night and I also had to make sure that the numbers matched at the end of the night and I also you know I also had to lock up be the last one to leave for 5 dollars an hour and you don't make minimum wage after you stop taking tables you still continue to make t- Two to five to two dollars an hour if you're a server while you're closing the restaurant. Five dollars an hour as a manager while I'm closing the restaurant, not making tips. It's BS.
7: Our boss there. So you would our, make if you worked eight hour a day, you would make two twenty dollar bills. Uh,
4: it, an eight hour day at five dollars an hour would be forty dollars. Yeah. Two, at two dollars an hour, two, it would be sixteen dollars. Yeah. I mean, and that's but, but most of that but see most of that when you actually get your paycheck it's zeroed out because all of your tax because you get to take home your tips at the end of the day but your tips the credit card tips at least are automatically counted on your forms and so taxes are taken out from your tips and from your $2 an hour all of that from your $2 an hour so i had multiple occasions gotten zero to $2 checks for 80 to 100 hours of work yeah, a zero dollar check for a hundred hours of work over the course of two weeks.
7: Right. And so, anybody that says, if you don't like it, go somewhere else. Well, guess oh, what? Man. There's going to be somebody else that has to take Somebody's that Somebody's
4: got to do it. Somebody's got to do it. So our boss, not our general manager, he did have hiring and firing power, but he didn't make a whole lot of money either. He was a great guy, loved our general manager. Um, the boss man, the guy who owned the place, I worked at this restaurant for more than three years. Do you know how many times I saw the guy who owned the restaurant? Twice. Maybe four times over the course of three years. And yet... You're telling me he didn't work. And he well, didn't work. And yet, I only saw him four times over the course of three years. And yet, the funniest thing, he had two houses and a jet ski. And most of my coworkers were on food stamps and in Section 8 housing. I don't know how... It how it is that he showed up at this restaurant four times a year, but he had two houses, and those of us who put in a hundred hours every two weeks were on food stamps and in Section Eight housing, and couldn't afford to, uh, you know, could barely afford to afford to put food on the table.
0: So that's my bad boss story. Well, I think when they call them job creators, maybe they're talking about the people who build yachts maybe. and jet skis and, and gated communities, right? Maybe. Uh, I spent several years in the restaurant and service industry, so uh, I definitely uh, relate to what Jacob just shared. Uh, one that I want to point out is uh, Sonic Drive-In. The, primarily, the, the ladies who bring you your ice cream and milkshakes are actually tipped employees. Uh, so, even though it's a fast food restaurant, you know, and they're lucky to get whatever change is left over at the end of the order, uh, they are not paid minimum wage. They are uh, relying on tips. Um, you know, in the restaurant industry, yes, they are griping and moaning uh, like big babies because they are having, str- you know, they're struggling to fill staff right now.
4: And we are loving, I just want to make it clear. We are loving every second of it. Every every time I see one of these articles where there's a business owner crying about not being able to fill jobs for starvation wages, I just, I lap it up. I get my big mug of boss tears. You know, Ben Shapiro has his leftist tears mug. I've got a big old, like comically large sized mug of boss tears that I drink from. And it sustains
7: me. Well, for years, all we've heard about is how the free market is the most wonderful thing. Well, yeah. I guess your free market is not working the way you like it to right now.
0: Right. I mean, this is the market at work. People yeah. people are having options, and you know, guess what? Signing up to work at your restaurant for eight dollars an hour with unpredictable scheduling, where you may not know what your schedule is from day to day. Uh, we're gonna mm-hmm. you're gonna come in, you're gonna get treated like crap. By some petty manager, you know, with a power trip. You're going to get treated like crap by a lot of customers, unfortunately, uh, who, you know, feel misery in their own life because they're being exploited. So they want to take it out on somebody, and it's probably you taking their order. Uh, the cuts and scrapes, the burns. Mm, yeah. um, I remember having to work on Christmas Day and having a line wrapped around the building from the moment I walked in to the moment we walked out and officially turned the lights off. Cleaning the grill and then hot grease splattering all over my face is a little parting Christmas gift for me. Yeah, uh, and, and, and one of the misconceptions,
7: and it's talked about a lot, is that there is no union for service workers. There is no union specifically for restaurant workers. And guess what, folks? Mm-hmm. We organize in the restaurant industry. We mm-hmm. have a union in Huntsville that you can join today. Right now, Jacob's got the 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 stamps with him. If not, huh? I do. There you go. You can join today, and we will teach you how to organize your coworkers and how to form a union in a restaurant, in the service industry, in the janitorial industry, in all of these industries where they say, I've never heard of a union being in there, so there's a misconception that there's not one. That's a fault. That's a misnomer. We will help
0: you. All you have to do is contact us. And if there's not one, you haven't seen one, that's just a sign that you need one. Yep. The following
4: clip was a pretty meandering conversation, but I think an enjoyable one to listen to, sparked by a caller about how companies just really don't care about their employees. Um, I think that's something that, that folks really need to, uh, <laughs> folks really need to take to heart. Let's listen. We got somebody else wanted to get on in on the boss bashing hotline on this international workers day we got about two minutes we got about well you know what yeah we got let's about two minutes well let's get in there and we, we let's get you in here and if you uh, um if it if it goes longer we can bring you in on the other side of the break we had uh it was uh michael from north carolina michael what you got for us
8: hey how's it going uh listen happy May Day from beautiful western north carolina how is everybody today
0: all right oh, man yeah. i'm doing good welcome welcome
8: I just wanted to call and say how much I appreciate what y'all are doing, um, how important it is, and how much of a rich labor history we have here in the South. Yes, and uh, for putting the red back in redneck.
2: There you yes, go. Hell I yeah.
8: say, uh, it's the truth. I just want to say uh, I'm tired of seeing all my southern brothers and sisters licking boots and kissing ass to the boss. And uh, and my experience through this pandemic is I was I won't say what I do, but I was really essential and we were just thrown to the wolves. Yeah. They didn't even mandate masks until about 4 or 5 months ago. Yeah. So uh uh I just want to say they don't care about you. They'd rather make money and if you died, they'd have somebody doing it for you the next day.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So they, they only care about
8: you. Y'all. Yeah, they, and, they only care uh, about
7: you to the extent that you are able to to profit uh, make profits for them. At that point, then it's over with.
8: Oop. That's right, David. So, so listen, I just wanted to say thank y'all and happy May Day and I hope you have a good weekend and uh keep up the good work. Thanks for calling, brother. Thank thanks, you so much. brother.
4: Appreciate it. Happy May Day. Yeah. Uh that's exactly right, and you know that's that's important for folks to understand. Like thinking that you've got a commitment to an employer or something. You know, I was talking to somebody yesterday about um, <clears throat> these coal miners going on strike, and they said that they just didn't didn't feel like it was right because they agreed to do a job, and and um, and now they're not doing a job, and they agreed to it, and it's like. uh They agreed to do the job in the same way that the company agreed to uh, pay them, which is at any time and for any reason revocable because we live in an at-will state. And if you don't think for a second that the minute it becomes just inconvenient, not even you're taking food off their table, the second it becomes inconvenient for a company to continue to hire you, you're gone.
7: Well, they agreed to do a job under a previous contract where they were mm-hmm. paid $7 or $8 an hour more. Right. And they gave up that $7 or $8 an hour to profit the company. Yeah. Now they're asking for it back.
4: Yeah. We'll be right back. This is the Valley Labor Report. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. <laughs> This is the Valley Labor Report live online and on the radio from Athens, Alabama. We are coming to you on this International Workers' Day, the real Labor Day, May the 1st. It is May Day, everybody, and we have opened the lines for boss bashing on International Workers' Day. The phone number is one 494 9866 if you want to get in on that, um, and and so Yeah, you know, I want to just I I want to dwell on that the the mine workers stuff a little bit more and and preview I I I can't I can't lay everything out on the table that we've got planned but we've got some cool stuff planned I think for for the next couple of weeks and I'm just going to give you a little bit of tidbit of what what we've got got in mind Um, but yeah you know the 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 mine workers we've we've gone over this before and so I won't dwell on it too much exactly the history but they took huge concessions including an eight dollar an hour pay cut um, to save The company. The company was saved, and now they want parity with other coal miners. They want what they had back before the company went bankrupt. They're not asking for anything crazy. That's something that they've stressed over and over and over. When I've talked to them, they just want what uh, what they had before. Currently, they're they're making what miners did um, back in the '90s. Uh, you know, I mean, it's not <clears throat> it's not fair what they're being asked to to accept. And you know, the idea of
7: look, if, they, if all these other supervisors and managers and owners are making what they were making before. Mm-hmm. Why not? What's fair? at what yeah. point is it not is it no longer fair for everybody else in this company to make more plus $30,000 a quarter bonuses $30,000 per quarter bonuses for the supervisors out there and we don't want to pay the workers a dime more the actual people that shovel that coal out of the hole 2 miles deep risking their lives risking mm-hmm. their lives we've had we we've, we've got i know of at least one memorial for mine workers that passed away in 2001 uh you know the they are the ones that generate the profits if there's mm-hmm. one group that deserves yeah. a fair share to be paid it's coal miners it is the people that are shoveling that coal out and yep. those are tough folks i would never want to do it
4: Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I, uh, I wouldn't want to do it. And, you know, I mean, it, it's it, it, it really, it, you know, why should the better question is not, you know, the, the question folks ought to be asking is not, well, why don't they just do the job that they signed up for? It's why don't the uh, why don't the executives, why don't they make a reasonable wage? Why? Why did they get four million dollars a year? Why did they get five, 10, 20, a billion dollars a year? Why did that? What did they do to earn that? They didn't go two miles below the surface of the earth every day, six, seven days a week for 10 hours a day without a paid lunch break. They didn't work for it. They just sit on money, and they get more money through other people's wages and through investments, and they buy products of other people's labor. They didn't do anything for it, by and large, in a lot of these in a lot of these instances. You know, you can talk to me about how you can talk to me about how maybe there are some in a lot of especially in these big companies the CEOs they basically outsource the actual executive and administrative work to the board of directors or to middle managers or things like that consulting but, firms consulting that they bring firms, in yeah so it, so in a lot of these places they're literally not doing anything but let's say even that a boss you know there is some executive and administrative work that has to be done in a company okay we can compensate them for that is that work worth more than three hundred times the median employee of a given company. No,
7: of They're course not. They're the welfare not. class. Of they course are the welfare not. Class. Exactly. They, they are, are living off the labor of other people. Exactly.
4: Whatever work you can show me that an executive of any given firm does. You cannot make me believe that it is 300 times more valuable than the work of the median laborer. I'm not even talking about the average, the average CEO-to-median worker ratio in this country is 320 to 1. It's not CEO-to-the-lowest-paid worker. It's CEO-to-the-median worker. is 320 to 1, and that is the average. In some companies, the disparity is 1,000 to 1.
7: That is absurd. And we don't hate these people. Let's point out the fact that everybody deserves a living wage. Sure. We don't think that that, we don't think that that they should be homeless. No. But there should be a shared wage. Right. There should be a a share of the profits. And at the point that they don't want to share the profits, I'm of the opinion that we should take over the businesses and the workers should run the business. You don't deserve to, to make this amount of money, this Mm-mm. obscene profits while people are living in swaller while people right. are having to work more than one job it's 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 it's, it's, unfathomable, it's that unfathomable in this country in the richest country in the world that this continues to happen and that the people that work alongside them mm-hmm. maybe in another industry actually take up for these rich CEOs that don't mm-hmm. even live in your state that don't pay taxes in your state that don't pay for your kids T-ball shirts mm-hmm. whenever they need shirts printed they it's exploitation at its at, at the, the utmost level and it's sickening yeah. that there's bootlickers out there that work just like the rest of us and will take up for these companies
4: yeah. I mean it, there there's just no sense in it. They don't, you know, Elon Musk doesn't know your name. He doesn't care about you, right? So all of your boo-looking online is not going to, you know, make him notice you, right? I mean, it's not it, it's it,
7: I actually read last week that he has filed with the SEC to change his name on the on the on the ownership papers of uh, one of his companies, I can't remember which one, to Techno Lord. Yeah techno lord and,
4: and, oh, is it delusional no,
7: is it no wonder that he thinks he's and, well, a king the mythology around
4: him is so crazy i brought up elon musk and now and now, but the mythology around him is insane it's like they reckon he's some like startup guy who uh who who start you know he was poor he's and he, he 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 started a company in his garage his parents own emerald mines. They owned emerald mines in apartheid, apartheid South so. Africa. Yeah, apartheid South Africa. I wonder that's what like, those
0: conditions were like.
4: Yeah, that's like that's like getting rich off of uh, of convict lease labor in the Jim Crow South on a cotton plantation, and then you know having it's it's a ama- like he didn't. Uh, uh, it just blows my mind that people think that he deserves
7: billions of dollars to be the second and, most. Or- and, and most of his business is funded by government funds. Yes, most of his business is funded by the taxpayers. They they raise him up as some type of uh, private uh, pri- private. Uh, um, uh, what would you call Entrepreneur. it? Entrepreneur, Entrepreneur, yeah, yeah. But but most of his funds come from taxpayer dollars, right. subsidies from the government. So, right. It, well, well, I mean, in,
4: in the in the form of contracts that they have with the federal government, and in the form of like literal tax subsidies and grants yeah. and uh, bailouts and things like that.
7: He's the PT Barnum of our time. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, even down here in Alabama, uh, all these jobs that they brag about growing and and bringing here, almost in every case, it is a slew of tax subsidies, tax write-offs. I mean, it is a form of legal bribery. Mm -hmm. They are bribing these companies to come down here. And, of course, they're advertising that we have non-union labor, by and large. And I think all this illustrates why it is so important that we grow the labor movement and that we actually build power among ordinary working people, uh, because the trends have gotten worse. It has gotten worse over the past mm-hmm. fifty years. Uh, these disparities that you're talking about with CEO pay, mm-hmm. just and wealth inequality, period. Uh, so that's why it is so. That's why we do what we do uh, because we want to grow. Our right. numbers,
4: and yeah. that's illustrated in the data. In the data of like CEO to worker pay, but it's all it's it, it's illustrated in the anecdotal story of the mine workers here in Alabama. Uh, you know, if you listen to our episode that we collaborated with working people on, Lee said that one of his friends talked like his grandfather told him that what they're asking the company is asking these folks to work for is is less than they made in the '90s at the same coal mine, and this is after. Two years of record-breaking production and profit for this company, uh, after six years of enormous concessions by the workers, and so, so they're they're still on strike. They've been on strike now for four or five Five weeks. weeks. This is the fifth week. Fifth week, and uh, it looks like they're going to be on strike for quite a while more. And so they're going to need all of our support, uh, and. and I reckon it's looking like it's going to be a knockdown, dragout kind of thing. And it costs money to you know keep these people fed because they don't get they don't get paychecks from the company while they're out on strike. They get uh, strike checks from the union, which are like heavily diminished from what they would get when they were working. I don't know exactly what it is, but you know they get some funds from the from the from the union. But um, and the union, in addition to that, also tries to make sure that they're uh, kept fed and um, you know they have. Water water and Gatorade and stuff on the picket lines, and, and that's costing a lot of money.
7: And, and let me tell you this. When there's people out there, and especially people in the state of Alabama, that says, why should we support the mine workers? Why should we care about them getting a raise? I'll tell you why. Because the money that they get from that raise will go directly back into our community Uh and into our state as opposed to going to some Wall Street executives, Mm -hmm. some hedge uh, funding, venture capitalists, vulture capitalists, and some faraway state. The money that these folks will make will go directly back into our community, and that is important. Yeah. That is the most important thing that we can do in our state is to raise the wages, because when we raise the wages in the state, we are creating more consumers. Mm -hmm. They are spending more money. They're buying more vehicles. They're going out to eat more. The money that the company makes is not going back into the community It's going into somebody's private jet. It's going into more investments into into stock markets that you will never see. We've got to pay more people more money. And you say, well, if we pay pay the waitresses at Ruby Tuesdays an extra $2 an hour, it's going to cost us more to eat there. Yeah, it's going to cost Mm -hmm. us a few cents more per meal to eat there. The amount of money that we will generate back into the community by paying them more will increase the economy in the state of Alabama. Don't let these these idiot right-wing conservative people tell you that it's going to take money out of your pockets. It's not.
4: Alrighty folks, to round out this special episode of Old Clips, we have a fairly recent interview with Professor Ahmed White, talking about the history of mass picketing in the United States. Like I said, I didn't think that this got enough uh, this got enough love when we went live with it. I think it's very important considering how, um, you know, considering the reinvigoration of the labor movement and uh, what it's gonna take for people to win. Right, it's not just enough to win a union election. Winning a union election is actually, uh, you know, that doesn't change. That in and of itself does not change people's lives materially. Uh, we've got to win better contracts, or we've got to win things outside of contracts that actually materially make people's lives better. And uh, mass picketing is a tactic that people in the past used a lot, and is never used anymore. And so we talked to Professor White about that. Even though in historical context, if you look over the last hundred years or so, 2021 wasn't particularly noteworthy, uh, there was certainly a different feel and a different tone in the coverage as workers from coal miners to grad students and factory workers to cereal makers went on strike. A common theme that arose from these strikes was the widespread use of injunctions. If you listen to the show, you know intimately about the struggle that the coal miners in Brookwood have faced uh, with these particularly repressive orders from the state, restricting them to 10 to 11 workers on the picket line at first, and then to six, then banning the practice altogether. Now, the state has graciously allowed the coal miners in Bessemer in Brookwood to have two people on the picket line. We're so thankful to the state to our overlords in the government. John Deere workers and Kellogg's workers also saw this tactic used against them as well. And so I'm watching Striketober unfold, right, like everybody else, and the boss making use of state power to repress protests that can in almost no case be called mass pickets. (laughs) And I thought that it would be interesting to learn more about the history of state repression of the picket and specifically uh, the repression of mass picketing. My friend Daniel, who is in law school, recommended looking up our next guest, and I was not disappointed. Mr. Ahmed White is a professor of law and the Nicholas Rosenbaum Professor of Law Chair at the University of Colorado. He got his law degree at Yale, and he has been doing a lot of work lately on the history of law and labor relations. He is the author of a book and the author of an upcoming book titled Under the Iron Heel, The Wobblies and the Capitalist War on Radical Workers. Uh, Mr. White, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm happy to be here
4: right so a lot of your work focuses on mass picketing as a tactic um, and its successes and defeat the injunctions that were issued against working folks last year and are still in effect for our sisters and brothers in Brookwood they weren't actually responses to anything that could be reasonably be called mass pickets right it,
1: that, that's right I mean mass mass pickets or mass picketing as a inherently ambiguous concept. Uh, no one has a definite notion of where mass picketing begins or ends, but uh, the instances here were, 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 not, were not particularly indicative of that and, and that's typical um, when you get these injunctions. They're, they're actually seldom premised on, uh, on mass picketing because mass picketing isn't engaged in very often uh, by workers uh, anymore. So what is a
4: mass picket then?
1: Well, you know, again, it's never been perfectly clear uh, what mass picketing is. Um, there's a long history in this country of banning picketing. And until the 1930s, these bans on picketing, often by judges uh, in the form of injunctions, were, um, were, were seldom contested, um, were, uh, were usually regarded as perfectly legitimate. In the 1930s, when um, there was a round of of reformist legislation passed in Congress, uh, picketing became, let's say, presumptively legal. Uh, When there was, by the 1940s, a kind of concerted backlash against that and against labor rights in general, one of the issues that the enemies of organized labor raised was the specter of mass picketing. And they, meaning people in Congress, including those who ultimately secured the enactment of the Taft-Hartley Act in 1947, uh, never had a clear idea what mass picketing was or wasn't. Uh, They figured correctly that if they could ban it in some way or another, um, the, the risks of mass picketing and the cost inherent in that ambiguous definition would fall on workers. In other words, if there were doubts whether picketing was mass picketing or not, workers uh, would bear uh, the burdens of that.
4: I see. I see. So the um, mass picketing as how would you define it then? Like in, in, in your research when you're looking at, at, at mass picketing, what what are the kind of things that you would you, you were looking at?
1: Well, uh, the the one factor is is just. Size, but again, that's not uh, um, that's not reducible to any particular number. It never really has. Um, under federal law, mass picketing is banned by uh, by Section Eight B one of the National Labor Relations Act. There's a f- kind of interesting story there because the ban there isn't an explicit one; it's implicit. It's a matter of the legislative history and intent. And the courts and the NLRB have uh, have taken that for granted. So if you read 8B1, it doesn't say uh, anything about mass picketing. Instead, it talks about uh, unions or their agents acting in a coercive um, way or interfering with or restraining um, other workers in their exercise of their right not to be not to be involved in union activity. That's been interpreted as the Congress intended uh, to to bar mass picketing. But again, there's no particular number uh, that defines what mass picketing is. Uh, Instead, the National Labor Relations Board and the the courts enforcing that federal provision tend to look at um, how coercive or how restraining or how uh, or, how, uh, or how much the, the protest activity interferes with the right of other workers. It's a very vague and ambiguous concept. Mm-hmm. I think that's I think how it's intended, and, and, that, and that works to the benefit of employers and their allies.
4: Right. And that's basically, you know, the, the quote unquote rights of workers not to engage in union activity. This is this is more or less the right to cross a picket line that this section of of the NLRA is supposed to be protecting. And so that that is one way that uh, that maybe we can think about mass picketing as as differentiated from from normal picketing is that, you um, it is more difficult for a worker to actually cross that picket line, like physically, because there's so many people there that you just can't cross it, right?
1: That's right. Brass tax, that's what it's about. And if you look at the early cases interpreting uh, this provision, the federal provision, uh, it didn't take much. I mean, the, the, the slightest interference with uh, even inconvenience uh, with right. The, the right of a scab to cross the line was for some courts, Quite enough, and that was a big change in a short period of time uh, in federal labor law. When the when the National Labor Relations Act, the Wagner Act, was first enacted in '35 and first became effective in the late '30s, it wasn't difficult to find courts who were, let's just say, far more realistic about uh, this issue and about uh, the realities of picketing and what it took for a picket line to be effective, and and therefore. We're not quick. We're not so quick to say just because someone was somewhat inconvenienced uh, mm-hmm. that, therefore, uh, something terrible happened. Now, back then, the issue was whether an employer could fire uh, a striker or a picketer because that person uh, interfered with someone who was crossing uh, the picket line. That's still an issue. But nowadays, after Taft Hartley, there's also the question of whether the employer or, uh, or, or the NLRB uh, ultimately could um, find that an unfair labor practice had occurred and, and mm. actually itself enjoined the picketing. Mm-hmm.
4: And so I think one of the things that um, even a lot of the public kind of, of just accepts is that people should have a right to cross a picket line. People should have, you know, that's something that that I, that I think a lot of people and, and and companies should have a right, quote unquote, to operate their business during a strike. Um, how would workers who engaged in mass picketing, who did not allow strike breakers, scabs to cross the picket line um, because of their numbers, uh, because of their numbers primarily, I mean, it was not. It, you know, people talk about union thugs, and that was not the primary means by which scabs were prevented from crossing the picket line. It was just that it was physically not possible to do that. And, and there were also sit down strikes and things like this. How would workers who did that defend these actions?
1: Well, you know, you put your finger on something really interesting, and that is uh, the, the kind of historical uh, function of mass picketing in elevating the labor movement. Uh, During this crucial period of growth in the 1930s, late 1930s and through the 1940s, mass picketing was effective, as you mentioned, because of the mere numbers. And usually, Mm -hmm. heyday of mass picketing, you might call the period in the the few years after the end of the Second World War, when there were a great number of strikes, the biggest strike wave in American history by far, uh, with a great number of those strikes involving mass picketing, there was actually very little violence uh, and very, very, almost no serious violence. And what that reflects is the fact that mass picketing worked not because people were being beaten up, you know, that happened occasionally, uh, but usually because mass picketing um, signaled to people who would cross a picket line that they shouldn't. Some of them were intimidated, I'm sure, some of them merely responded uh, to the, the theater of it all. It they, 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 mm-hmm. was an indication of how many of their fellow workers were on the side of the union. And mm-hmm. for them that maybe they should reconsider their thoughts about the underlying issue that provoked the strike. Um, and that's why... When it comes down to it, mass picketing was banned at the federal level uh, with mm-hmm. Hartley. It was very effective at making the union movement um, a meaningful force in American politics and economics. Without mass picketing, the question is, how can strikes be effective? Strike is a withholding of mm-hmm. labor. For some workers in some circumstances, that's enough. But for a lot of American workers, it's not. Uh, particularly where employers have a very broad right to bring in replacement workers, either temporary replacements or if it's an economic strike, of course, permanent replacements. That raises a question, how can you win a strike if, you, if you're limited to, to two or five or seven or whatever people on a picket line uh, patrolling in a way that that some court has prescribed, uh, or even if you don't have an injunction, you're worried that If you bring too many people on the picket line, the employer's going to go and file an unfair labor practice charge uh, against the National Labor Relations Board.
4: Right, right. So we've got about... Three or four more minutes on the radio, and and then we're going to continue. So, folks, if you're listening to us on the radio, you can find us online. We're on Facebook, we're on YouTube at the Valley Labor Report. You can continue to listen to this conversation that we're having with Professor Ahmed White from the University of Colorado about the history of mass picketing in the United States. And the last thing that I wanted to, and, and we'll wrap the interview here for the radio, is the injunctions that we saw in 2021. What is the basis for them? Because, like I said, these are not mass pickets. These are not pickets that are preventing people from crossing the picket line. And they still had the state come down and say, mm, too much. What is the deal there?
1: So that's very interesting and I think quite important. So what I found in studying um, the use of injunctions in, in labor, uh, in labor cases, uh, is a consistent theme and that is the ability of the people seeking these injunctions, employers, um, to premise the injunction on an anticipation of violence and disorder that is mm. often, that is often at least far, far, far removed from any present indication that there would be violence or disorder, and the courts have. Um, consistently accepted that argument. So what you have here is a situation where uh, courts, again, routinely issue these injunctions, and they have for decades now, uh, without there being much proof at all that any kind of trouble uh, <laughs> is, is 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 in the offing. It's this anticipation mm. that there would be trouble. And that's been true of the way the NLRB has um, Enforce this Section Eight B one, in other words, the federal limitations on uh, on on mass picketing. But it's also been true, as uh, as your question and your introduction to this uh, this this segment indicates, uh, in the great number of cases where state courts have done what state courts can do, separate from the NLRB, and that is to issue their own injunctions. It's this anticipation of violence and disorder, even when it's not in the offing, uh, even when it's a distant threat, if any threat at all. The one one other thing I would say, if we have a moment to say this, is that this all happens in a context where employers or their allies very frequently provoke whatever kind of disorder there may be anyway. And when they do that, they provide themselves with a basis for the issuance of these injunctions and never pay much of a price for.
0: I got to say, um, I am very uh, just excited to even learn about you. Honestly, um, I, I was telling the rest of the crew here this morning. It's, it's always great to find out new people who are ex. And you're not new; you're just new to me, but right. uh, <laughs> experts in this. And you know, I'm looking at your bio here. Uh, at the University of Colorado and it's like right up our alley. Um mm-hmm. uh, so it's gonna be it's gonna be fun to dig into some of your research and uh before you go I, I definitely wanted you to have an opportunity to just share um you know give us give us sort of a, a high level summary of what has been the focus of your research uh as a professor of law focused on unions. What have you been looking at and you know maybe where are some of the, the most um what are the things you've studied throughout the past that seem to resonate so much in twenty twenty two
1: um uh, good question i so so my work I, I started out writing about criminal law and I got kind of bored with that i think that's a that's kind of a dead end um, um field to work on if you're if you're if you're a leftist i mean if you if your critique is just a liberal. Critique, there's always something to say, and I agree with a lot of what people say, but I got it, I, I gradually got more and more into labor, stuff. and my focus has come to be labor repression, um, the different ways that, that labor is repressed. And what I've come to see is, or what I've come to understand is something I always knew was true, uh, and that is the, the kind of inherent bias of the state. Uh, and, and the legal system. So m- most of the work I've done kind of culminates uh, in, in something like that, that, sort of limits of the liberal system of labor rights and, um, and, and the way that, that contributes to a to this kind of comprehensive system of repression. And one that, as you both know, it doesn't, doesn't bar all kinds of labor protest all the time but it certainly does bar the most effective kinds of protest all all the time. Uh, and if I had to sum up everything I've done, that's what it comes down to. And, um, you know, it's interesting because I'm just confirming what I knew to be true when I was 17. Right. (laughs) Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Right. And, and that's sort of, uh, you know, to think about why Jacob even was looking for you and invited you on the show because we were watching this happening in Mm -hmm. Brookwood and, you know, we know the facts on the ground there, and it was it's just nice to uh, hear from somebody who has seen this and studied it for a long time and documented how this has been an ongoing pattern. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's important because sometimes people, I think sometimes people see the government um, as sort of this, like, neutral force mm-hmm. that is pushed and pulled in different directions. But, you know, in the case of the labor movement especially, but I think in a lot of areas... It's very clearly not. I mean, it's very clear mm-hmm. what side they're on, and it's not our mm-hmm. side. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's something that we have to deal with mm-hmm. you know, in our organizing. We have to factor that in. And, no, um, that,
1: that's exactly right. I mean, one, one of the most exasperating things in dealing with, you name it, other other academics, um, especially in law, but other sort of mainstream media people or whoever, is this sense that when the states against labor, and nobody can deny, unless they're a total reactionary, that the states often uh, on the side of employers. But but what's exasperating is how often people want to believe that that's just an exceptional thing, that's an aberration. It's maybe all, they had a good reason that time, right? Yeah, it's like well, or maybe I'll, that's I'll be, how it's supposed to be. <laughs> yeah, it's a, I mean, it, this isn't something to say on radio, but it, the the best analogy might be to like you know an abusive an abusive partner. Like, if, if, it's, if it's always, if the abuse is always there, then this person doesn't love you. You know where they stand. Uh, they're right. fundamentally against you. And I wish people thought that same way about the state and about the legal system. That these are not aberrations. Mm. These, are, these, are the, these, are, these are instances of the state telling you where it really stands. Um, right. And I wish people better, under, outside of circles like this one, better understood that.
4: Right. Right. Well, yeah. So let's, you know, the we're not constrained by, you know, breaks or anything like this now. So let, let, let's back up a little bit, because you mentioned that the law and the state has consistently banned the most effective sorts of protests and picketing and, and mass picketing, for an example, sit down strikes, for an example, um, the. So let's illustrate for a bit, and and you do that in in one of your articles, and I, I would recommend folks. I mean, it's like a, a you know it, it's a it's a scholarly ar- article. Um, the title is "Workers Disarmed," um, and, and the link is in the show notes. Uh, but it, it's a fantastic article, article, and you do that in this article of, uh, and, and you lay out how effective mass picketing specifically was for working folks. So can you tell us about its rise as a tactic and illustrate its successfulness for us?
1: Yeah, so before the 1930s, workers um, did whatever they could in a context where almost everything they engaged in was presumptively or potentially illegal. Um, That changed in the 30s. But what didn't initially change, in other words, you got this, this law enacted in 1935 that seemed to protect workers' rights to organize, to engage in protests like the Bargain. For a couple of years, most big employers just ignored that while trying to get the Supreme Court to declare it unconstitutional. And there's a great story, an important story in American history about how workers responded to that by organizing, by saying, well, we're going to make the law effective. The law isn't giving us rights. We're going to assert those rights and make the law effective. And so that's the story. That's a story of mass picketing, but also of sit-down strikes. Um, And so you had this massive wave of sit-down strikes in 19, beginning in late 1936 and through the first half of 1937. And Um, Some of my colleagues, uh, Jim Pope um, and uh, uh, Drew Hansen, um, have argued persuasively, I think, that this was a major, major reason that the Wagner Act was found constitutional by the Supreme Court in April of 1937. Um, Anyway, just to answer your question, uh, no sooner that that happened than the courts and the police Started cracking down on sit down strikes. And in 1939, the Supreme Court basically ruled sit down strikes were illegal. They followed that up in 1942 with another case involving some workers striking on a a ship that kind of put the nail in the coffin of sit down strikes. Said sit down strikes are basically categorically, almost categorically illegal. In that context, workers turn more and more to mass picketing uh, as an effective means of asserting labor rights. So the Wagner Act is constitutional, but as we all know, the Wagner Act doesn't give workers a contract. It doesn't compel employers uh, to, um, to recognize them unless they've got a majority of workers signed up. So you've still got to be active and effective, and that's where workers turned to mass picketing. Um, and it, it really blossomed in the early 1940s and into the mid-1940s and late 1940s uh, as, an effective, um, as an effective tactic. And that's, again, why the Congress tried to declare it, not tried, did uh, essentially declare it unconstitutional in 1947. And in the meantime, state courts were continuing to issue injunctions uh, themselves, uh, banning mass picketing or disruptive picketing or picketing they thought might become disruptive or whatever. Uh, and what they did, what they were able to do was gradually to get more and more license to do that in a context where initially there was some question whether state courts could still assert their jurisdiction uh, in a world where now you've got a federal labor law that's governing Mm -hmm. labor relations. There was some question whether state courts authority to issue injunctions would be preempted um, by this new federal law. In other words, barred because of the the supremacy of the federal government. Um, that was cleared up in the 1940s too that state courts can issue these injunctions as long as they don't try to meddle with um, the particulars of the labor law, in other words, as long as they don't try to, to rewrite as it were the Wagner Act and its provisions, um, as long as their injunctions are focused on order uh, and, and, and the threat of violence or, or, or interference with uh, public access. As long as they're focused on that, they, they pretty much have carte blanche to issue injunctions.
0: Right. Well, and as you mentioned, it can be based on just their imagining mm-hmm. of anticipated <clears throat> threats or violence. It doesn't have to really be concretely tied to any real threats. They don't have to have evidence that, you know, there's uh, troublemakers uh, right. preparing to make trouble, just just the fear um, it, it se- seems to be enough to get the courts on their side and you know as you're talking something that really resonates with me is that in the labor movement we, we go back to the 30s uh, often as kind of uh, the peak of our power and our, our size the 30s and immediate you know post-war period and so many of those weapons that we had tactically uh, have been, outlawed um, from the mass picket to uh, our you know sympathy strikes and, and solidarity strikes. Um, that, I think has uh, boxed us in as a movement and there's, I think been a natural trend to just operate within those legal confines. It seems you know it's kind of a natural thing. We institutionalize. We have official tax status. We have staffers, (laughs) salaries, and so we got to follow the law. We can't. Mm -hmm. We can't be reckless. Uh, And it almost it it feels, you know, you you brought up uh, uh, abusive relationship earlier as a metaphor. So I'm I'm gonna bring this one up. Feels like we've been domesticated, Mm. uh, and, and. you know, ha- had our back broken a little bit and, and we have to operate within these very strict confines. Um, so that lead, that's a long way of leading me to my question, which would be, given that the mass picket and so many other tactics that we know worked in the past are illegal, should the labor movement be looking at taking the risk uh, of, you know, going outside those Small narrow legal confines, or should we uh, be looking at? Are there new tactics that they haven't figured out to ban yet <laughs> that we need to be really uh, focused on? I, I just don't, you know, don't know if you have any uh, thoughts there, but I'd be curious to hear it.
1: Well, I, I, I think you raise a, a crucial question. <laughs>
0: Uh, well, I know you are a professor of law,
1: and I don't want you to say anything. <laughs> saying get, get me in trouble, yeah. <laughs> uh, but though no, you raise a crucial question, and, and one that I think has to be on the table what, what is the, the value of, 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 of being legal? And I, I'm not saying that to mm-hmm. say. Um, to endorse engaging in criminal acts or whatever. People have to decide for themselves what they're going to do in this world. Um, but not everything that's illegal is criminal either. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Some of my colleagues, a few of my colleagues among law professors uh, have, have begun to raise this issue. Like what's, what's the real value of the NLRB system to workers now? Um, when, as you put it quite correctly, so much of what was effective... Um, 70, 80 years ago is illegal now anyway. Uh, when the NLRB and the NLRA do as much to constrain what workers can do to limit workers' rights and prerogatives as they do to assist workers. And, you, you know, you noted, uh, it, yeah, unions, if they are legitimate, have to have lawyers and staff. I mean, I completely understand that, being a lawyer uh, myself. But one of the problems with that approach is even to the extent that it works, who who has the the greater resources to play Mm -hmm. that game anyway? I mean, there are a lot of great labor lawyers out there. I know them. I respect them. But legal representation costs a lot of money, a lot of time. Even if it worked perfectly, you're dealing with people, big employers Whose resources are often much, much, much more extensive. They can they can win that battle often, even against the best, most conscientious, most sacrificial of uh, labor lawyers on the union side of things. In terms of new tactics, I mean, I'm I'm starting starting to get up there in years a little bit, and I, I, you know, I don't know what's what's out there. I just know that um, since the advent of the internet and then social media people have been and the labor side have been, have been waiting for the next new thing. And it's, it's never Mm. come. Um, it's never quite come that, that, that it was, it was going to be the internet and then, then email and then the various Mm. uh, social media platforms were going to replace the old tactics that uh, were no longer effective. And I'm not denigrating those efforts. I'm just saying, um, nothing's been a kind of panacea of the magic bullet. Right. Yeah. And I, I, I know there are a lot of uh, really uh, smart and, and conscientious young, often young organizers out there and, um, and, and, you know, more power to them. Uh, maybe, maybe something will, uh, will come around and, uh, and, and help change things. Um, just hasn't happened yet. Right. Well, and, and the,
4: The thing that has has been the most effective, like you said, has been, um, you know, withholding our labor and and basically not allowing others to contribute their labor, you know, where where there are people that want to cross that picket line. And and, you know, the the rise of mass pickets is a tactic you mentioned in your article that during a one year period that formed the core of, quote, America's late American labor's greatest upsurge there were 4600 strikes including some 5 million workers um 2021 striketober there were like 300 something strikes and some hundreds, hundreds of thousands of workers you know so and we have multitudes more people in the country mm-hmm. several more workers hun, uh, you know more than 100 million workers in this country and so the 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 difference there is huge and the when i asked you earlier like how did how did workers justify you know cuz today this this right this pro- property rights and right to go cross a picket line is kind of taken for taken for granted and i think that was contested back then when workers decided to take this action to say no like we don't believe you have a right to cross our picket line we don't believe that you have a right to work here while we are striking do you think that there was a that, that they spent a whole lot of time philosophically and morally thinking through these things and that there was a, a really sturdy justification in their minds or that they just recognized that this was pow- and, it, and it was more of a, it was more of a tactical calculation or a philosophical justification that they had in their minds. What do you think was was going on when people did this?
1: Oh, a little of both. I mean, depending on who was involved. I mean, I think for people on the left wing of the labor movement, there was a an attempt to to ground this in uh, in, in in leftist politics and philosophy. Uh, whether you're talking about sort of IWW syndicalist or even kind of communist party um, types in the nineteen thirties and nineteen forties, I think for the mainstream of the labor movement, it was. It was largely a practical thing, but but not entirely. I mean, if you look at, and i can say a little bit about this in the article you mentioned, if you look at the legislative history of the Taft-Hartley Act, when uh, a number of these union people went and testified in Congress, some of them did make an effort to justify mass picketing, and it did seem at least somewhat earnest. You had Walter Ruther, who was you know no radical, certainly not by 1947, basically reminding people in Congress that if, you, if you're going to talk about this issue in terms of violence and right and wrong in that sense, then he told them, quite rightly, they had the issue backwards. He said, mm-hmm. you, let's, let, let me remind you who, in, in, in so many words, he said, let me remind you who was doing the beating and the killing of people uh, mm-hmm. in this country Um, not very long ago was, I think, the phrase he used. And and quite rightly, in the 1930s, uh, scores, probably a couple of hundred people altogether were killed in labor disputes, and and the vast majority of them were on the union side. And the president of the the Communications Workers Union, who was even farther to the right, much more of a conventional trade unionist than Ruther, uh, said something really interesting to Congress when they were debating mass picketing he refused to condemn it. So these, these, these uh, I think, uh, Republican congressmen were, were trying to box him in and say, we want you to condemn mass picketing. And he kept refusing to do it. And finally, kind of exasperated, he said something like, um, I view, he said, I'm not going to sympathize. In so many words, he said, I'm not going to sympathize with the guy who uh, is trying to cross the picket line. That's what you're trying to get me to do. He said, that guy is like the guy who won't obey the traffic routes, uh, who decide that the red light is for other people and not for him. And I thought that was really interesting because that put a finger on something fundamental. Labor and labor rights are about solidarity. Uh, they don't work without solidarity. And this idea that was consecrated with Taft-Hartley, the right of dissidents, uh, essentially of scabs, placement workers, whoever, freeloaders, not to go along with the union is entirely antithetical to the very thing that is at the core of a functional labor movement, is business of solidarity. And this guy, Bernie, uh, Bill Bernie, who was the, the president of the Communications Workers Union, he understood that. And I think everyone on some level in the labor movement back then understood that. Well, and I think that
4: there's got to there's um, you know th- there's a certain amount of m- may- maybe a a belief that labor has a certain amount of of democratic rights in the workplace in the same way that you know the the traffic lights that he men- that, that he mentioned they didn't they're not you know there aren't traffic light trees that we have to obey by some natural law they arise from ostensibly, uh, ideally, democratic processes of electing governments and and governments uh, executing laws and city ordinances and things like this. And we have a democratic right to bind our neighbors to certain standards and to certain. and, And, you know, we have a right democratically to say that when this light is red, you can't go. And and uh, and and I you know and I think that I think that workers have a democratic right to say that you know when the light is red you can't go you know <laughs> you can't uh, and and the picket line is is a red light the picket line is a mm-hmm. red light and 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 we are and 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 when workers say democratically that that there's a red light here I think that that is I, I don't think that that even even today union members see uh, um. I don't think that that they conceive of it in that way and that they believe it has as much legitimacy as it ought to.
1: Mm -hmm. No, that's a, that's, I think that is a, that is a a great point, a tremendously important point. I, I mentioned a few minutes ago, my friend and colleague, uh, Jim Pope, he's a law professor just retired at uh, Rutgers and Jim wrote a, just a fascinating and very important article, um, maybe a couple of decades ago about the sit-down strikes called worker lawmaking. I forget the, the journal it's in, but what, what Jim argued, I think this is, this is just absolutely crucial. He looked at the history of these sit-down strikes and he made, I think uh, the, the essential point that you have to look at what those workers do were doing in those sit-down strikes as an exercise in lawmaking, mm-hmm just any legal thing they were doing, which is the conventional way of seeing Oh, they were violating the rights of private property and trespass and all of that. Jim said, no, look at them and look at the way they understood themselves what they were doing. They were trying to assert a different understanding of what the law meant or should mean, and one that was not any the less legitimate than the kinds of notions of private property, or trespass that were being used against them. And you could say the very same thing about something like mass picketing, that workers have a prerogative, and to some extent back in the day they did try to assert their notion of what is legitimate, what is disorderly, what is coercive, what is interfering with a person's a person's right to uh, to go to work? What, what does the right to work even really mean? Um, and I think if workers could recapture that, I'm not saying that's easy <laughs> or that right, I have right. some program, yeah. but I think if workers could recapture that kind of spirit, um, it would go a long way towards revitalizing uh, the labor movement. Again, it's not easy because a lot you end up in jail doing this or God forbid, mm-hmm seriously injured or killed on a picket line that happened all the time 70 80 90 years ago um, but but if if workers could recapture that spirit it would go a long way towards rebuilding uh, the labor movement
0: wow. I, I think there's a lot that y'all just uh, discussed there that that to me speaks to the sho- the social contract mm. uh, in the way in which you know, to the extent that we even have a social contract anymore that anyone could pinpoint, it's certainly been, I think, individualized and much less of a collective nature uh, than it was 70, 80 years ago in the time period we're talking about. And another thing that you mentioned uh, that I think is is a major you know, difference between now and then was that there was a left. There was such a thing as the left (laughs) Um, and it was, uh, you know, such a monumental part of the labor movement. And, you know, as mass pickets and other tactics were outlawed, the left itself was purged from Mm -hmm. the labor movement. And, you know, we've yet to recover from that. So Mm -hmm. I think those are some of the things that, you know, if you look at this trends historically over the past seven, eight decades, you know, we we had our, our major weapons taken away. We had some of the, uh, you know, the most, um, sh- let's see, energetic, uh, perhaps, uh, factions of the movement um, taken away uh, by the purging of the left. And I think all those things have, you know, again, go back to like the domestication piece of how the movement has has changed from a, militant and, and radical social movement that was, as, as you described and your colleague described, making his own law, essentially, mm-hmm. um, to now much more institutionalized, uh, much more dependent on, um, you know, playing within the rules, the rules that are certainly not written for us or by us, uh, but are for us to abide or else. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, those, we, we could probably talk about this all day, but it just... Uh, those were some things that stuck out to me and definitely, uh, we'll be looking up Jim Pope from Rutgers as well. Yeah. So <laughs> no, uh, professor, you're, you're, you're teaching, you're teaching us. <laughs> I, I don't know how your week went, but, uh, at least on uh, today, yeah. Saturday, you can, you can be assured you taught some folks today.
4: Yeah. I, I was telling when I told when, when Daniel suggested you, um, and I, and I found you, it's like, you couldn't have created somebody who's doing work. More precisely, for <laughs> more precisely about what I wanted to talk about, um, and so you know th- these tactics' effectiveness, there was a really strong. You know, we we we've hit on some of the backlash to that, but there was a really strong incentive to undercut and delegitimize and push back against these tactics, either by hook or by crook, right?
1: Um. Yes, most definitely. I mean, this was this was this was quite well organized. Uh, I mean, if I, I think if I get your question right, uh, if you look at uh, at the, the the opposition to it, not just labor rights in general, but effective forms of labor protest, um, it was not only organized; it was um, it was well organized, and and you could see that in the way it changed in reaction to different circumstances. So initially when the Wagner Act was passed, the the big employers' uh, response was, we're just gonna gonna ignore this, this will go away. The Supreme Court had invalidated, essentially, most of the first new deal, they'll invalidate this, and we'll pay some lawyers to to bring that about. That failed, they changed their strategy. uh, Almost overnight, the strategy was okay, uh, we'll get the Wagner Act repealed. And they spent the next decade from about 37 to 47 um, first trying to get a repeal. They saw that I wasn't going to go anywhere. So then they thought, well, we don't have to get it repealed. We'll just get it amended. This will work to mm-hmm. our advantage. And that, that gave rise to Taft-Hartley. Um, and then I think for a couple of decades, they were more or less resigned to uh, labor rights, to, to some, some level of functional labor rights. But as we all know, by the 1970s and 1980s, they changed their perspective again. And they said, we, what we'll do now is destroy the labor movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they have all but done that. If you look at right. union representation, it was organized at every level around the big employer associations, mm-hmm. the chamber. Of commerce, the National Association of Manufacturers, the the Business Roundtable, the big industry groups, the Iron and Steel Institute. Um, it's amazing how well organized this 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 always right. was.
4: In in the you know state legislatures in D.C. and and like I said, by hook or by crook. One of the things that you mentioned in the article, and I'll, I'll quote a bit here. Besides giving rise to the Memorial Day massacre mentioned at the outset of this article, clashes between SWOC picketers and police company agents and National Guardsmen left at least six and possibly eight unionists dead and well over 300 people injured in Michigan, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. And there's not a single instance of, of quote-unquote union violence that, that looks like that. That that's just not something that happens on the other side, and so you've got this assault on on working people's rights to to picket and and to even exist as as a union as an organization in all across the country, and so the and and like you said that let leaves us today with you know uh, with a situation where state judges in Tuscaloosa can say. People got their feelings hurt and and there was and they had feelings about fear or something. And so now we're going to limit the picket line to two people. When did we was as soon as mass picketing started becoming like uh, de facto illegal. Did we immediately see the anticipation of violence or intimidation or coercion used as a justification for these injunctions? Or did it take a little bit of time to get to where we are today?
1: It took some time, but you know, one of the ironies here is that if you plotted out uh, the serious violence, the rate of serious violence in labor relations in the United States, it remained quite high through the mid and late 1930s and then it began to fall and it it fell dramatically. So only a relatively small number of people have been killed in labor disputes since uh, the end of the Second World War. But what that did, um, and this is the irony of it, because, of course, no one's in favor of people getting seriously hurt or killed. But the irony here is that um, the threshold of what was tolerable in terms of violence has steadily ratcheted, or not just violence, but unrest has steadily ratcheted downward. So you can find, in, in, even in Supreme Court opinions, you mentioned uh, the violence, of, quoting from the article of mine, uh, violence in uh, what was called the Little Steel Strike um, in 1937, where about uh, 16 or 18 people were killed in different, in different clashes. Um, in the wake of that strike, you can, you can find a sup- U.S. Supreme Court opinion where the Supreme Court said, basically, uh, if the labor law is going to function, the people administering it, including the courts, have to understand that there's going to be a certain level of disorder and a certain level of violence. And the court wasn't saying, oh, we're going to... The case about whether these strikers were entitled to be reinstated after this mm-hmm. big strike. Uh, and the court validated the NLRB's ruling that most all of them had a right to be reinstated, even though the employers were saying they were the authors of violence. As you point out, the workers right. in the strike hadn't killed anybody. Uh, it mm-hmm. was the and their agents and police who had killed 16, 18 people. Anyway, the Supreme Court said, look, um, you can't just say that workers involved in a strike that's violent are not entitled to be reinstated. Yeah, if someone tried to kill another person, that person is disentitled to reinstatement. But just because they were involved in a picket line fracas doesn't Mm. mean that the employer can deny them employment. That was in 1940 when the the Supreme Court decided this case. As time has passed here, the threshold for the courts of what is intolerable disorder, what is sufficiently threatening of violence has diminished further and further and further and further until you get Kind of absurd things. Um, like you and I, Jacob, were talking about this earlier. The the injunction issued here in Colorado uh, mm-hmm. against the King Supers, the Kroger's uh, picketers. You know, I read the injunction and the the claims that uh, it was premised on, and they were absurd. Um, mm-hmm. Someone playing loud music on the on the <laughs> store. Um, some people were, I mean, and, and epithet was supposedly you 8,000 people out on strike and an epithet was supposedly you, we don't know if that even happened. We don't know what the epithet was. Uh, the threshold of what is intolerable has, 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 has worked its way so far downward uh, now. Mm. Uh, as you've noticed uh, several times, quite rightly, um, that is uh, the underpinning of so many of these devastating uh, restrictions on picketing. Right.
0: It's interesting to hear you describe that in terms of the Colorado pickets, because, you know, I'm thinking back to my time as a high school teacher. And, I, I, you know, if maybe managers at Kroger or the courts had ever just visited a high school hallway... <laughs> <laughs> they're going to hear more than one, uh, they may hear some uh, bad language and some yelling and yeah. some loud music and, uh, you know, folks being a little bit rowdy. Yeah, I mean, uh, good grief, So you know? it, I, I have a, I, maybe I'm biased, I am biased, but uh, my guess is that that picket line uh, was no rowdier than, uh, you know, most, uh, most anywhere in our state on a Saturday in the fall during college football season, mm. um, you know, so it's, it is absurd. Uh, but something that you mentioned about that Supreme court uh, ruling back in 1940 is that it seems to me that even justices of the Supreme court, you know, clearly, you know, the elite of the elite had some recognition that there was conflict between employer and employee not, I mean, you know, I'm not saying that they were uh, admitting that Marx was right. We have a bourgeoisie (laughs) versus proletariat driving history. But, you know, it seems like there was, you know, among all sides, more of a a understanding that there was contradiction there and there was Mm -hmm. conflict there. And in the 80 years since, it seems like we have done everything we can as a society and through media and culture to sort of Mystify that contradiction and conflict, mm-hmm. and erase it from consciousness.
1: Oh, absolutely! If if you look, there's an interesting kind of backstory here. The the Supreme Court um, wasn't, you know, in the in the late 30s and early 40s uh, uniformly on labor side, as we know, but but it was occasionally. Um, and at at the forefront of that, in the lead on the court, were some interesting figures. Um, one of them was Alabama's own You Go Black. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also had William O. Douglas. And then maybe the most fascinating of those people was a guy named um, named Frank Murphy, uh, who was the governor of Michigan during the big sit-down strikes, including the big GM sit-down strike in Flint in the winter of 36, 37. And he... He distinguished himself by refusing to, he called out the National Guard, but he refused to unleash them on the sit-down strikers, and that that abetted the UAW strikers in winning that strike. And then a few years later, he ends up on the Supreme Court, partly because his, his actions during that strike cost him the, the governorship in Michigan, and so Roosevelt put him on the Supreme Court. But these things are sort of interconnected in interesting ways. He, He was then the author of a case called Thornhill versus Alabama in 1940, which was the high water mark in the Supreme Court ruling that picketing was protected under the First Amendment of the US Constitution. Until that decision, uh, it was not clear that people had a constitutional right to pick it. And then this guy, Frank Murphy, authored the Supreme Court decision that said, yes, you absolutely do have a First Amendment right to engage in picking. It was a labor case out of Tuscaloosa. And then mm-hmm. every, uh, every case after that, the, the Supreme Court, well, just about every case after Sir Thornhill, that the Supreme Court decided on picketing, eroded that right, <laughs> uh, limited it further, limited that right further. So there's some interesting interconnections there, and they have to do with, they rest on um, the fact that in a lot of ways, you know, we think of, of 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 progress as a kind of linear thing. In a lot of ways, the Supreme Court, some of these Supreme Court justices were further to the left, way further to the left. Mm. Especially on labor issues back in the 1930s and 40s, than anybody you'll find on the court today.
0: Yeah, that and I, I was not familiar with that uh, Alabama connection. So that's really cool. Appreciate you sharing that.
4: Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, Professor White, I really, really appreciate your time. This has just been um, that this has been fantastic uh, exactly what I was looking for. Um, was there anything that, uh, that that you wanted to make sure that you mentioned before we wrapped up our conversation?
1: I can't think of anything. Uh, the main thing is just to uh, thank you all for having me. It's my, been my pleasure.
4: Uh, what is, and, and the, you have, you've got a book coming out um, in the next year or so, but you have a book already, and I, I'm planning on, on reading it, uh, it's called *The Last Great Strike: Little Steel, the CIO, and the Struggle for Labor Rights in New Deal America*, uh, University of California Press, 2016. Um, folks can check out that. Folks can check out your um, scholarly articles, fantastic stuff there. And the uh, the new book that you've got come out coming out. You said it's in October.
1: Is is when you're expecting it to be released? Should, should be, should be, in out in October. Yep. <laughs>
4: Under the Iron Heel, The Wobblies, and The Capitalist War on Radical Workers. We will uh, hope to have you on again. Thank you for being so generous with your time. And uh, have a great Saturday, okay? Thanks, everybody, for listening to this special episode. I hope that we gave you something enjoyable to listen to as you're coming out of your Christmas food coma. (laughs) We'll be back to our regularly scheduled live programming next week. Until then, solidarity forever.